Good morning, everyone. I'm Jane Harmon, the president and CEO of the Wilson Center, and excited to introduce an event which will give you a rare inside look at North Korea. Uh, today's event is a presentation from veteran correspondents and photojournalists who have worked inside the so-called Hermit Kingdom. It's brought to us by our favorite local hermit, uh, Jean Lee, who heads our Hyundai uh, Korea program, and uh, thanks to Hyundai for its sponsorship of our work for the last several years. It is called Assignment North Korea, and you'll learn why that is in about uh, two minutes. Uh, President Trump and Kim Jong-un may have met three times in the past two years, but North Korea, at least this would be my view, remains as remote and as inaccessible as ever. The U.S. has no diplomatic presence in Pyongyang. Nuclear negotiations, uh, at least as of today, this calendar day, are at a standstill. Uh, stay tuned. Um, I don't know anything, but things change quickly. And since the death of Otto Warmbier, uh, the State Department has banned nearly all American travel to uh, North Korea. However, a few intrepid journalists have managed to get on the ground in North Korea, and some of the, them are here with us today, including Ed Jones, AFP's chief photographer in Pyongyang. I'm very excited to see your work. Uh, Katie Stallard Blanchett, a Wilson Center Fellow. That's a very important thing. Um, all of you should dream about being Wilson Center Fellows. And former Sky News Bureau Chief in Beijing, who has reported from North Korea, Hyung Young Kim, the managing director of the Unification Broadcast Center in South Korea, which focuses on North Korean issues, and the intrepid Jean Lee, director of our Korea program and AP's first Pyongyang bureau chief. Big deal. Uh, one thing, uh, oh, there are many things, but one of the things that sets our Korea program apart from others is that we are committed to expanding understanding of North Korea by turning to experts who have spent time inside the country as journalists, diplomats, and aid workers. Uh, to understand North Korea, you have to study it from the inside, not just from a distance. And I myself, imagine this, 20 years ago, uh, went to Pyongyang as part of a, uh, a House of Representatives Intelligence Committee trip. It was quite unusual. Jean has heard this story, but the rest of you haven't. Um, at the last minute, we were supposed to take military air that is often provided or used to be provided to members of Congress going on fact-finding trips, but there were no airplanes. So all there was was a refueling plane, which was retrofitted to take about, uh, I guess, 10 of us-ish uh, uh, into Pyongyang. And a refueling plane, uh, no, no surprise, has no windows on the plane. And it also is kind of outsized. This is for refueling from the air of other planes. And it was retrofitted with a few rows of seats and a kind of horrible, you know, air conditioning system on the ceiling, which, of course, dripped all over us. And we flew into beautiful downtown uh, Pyongyang at sunset. And the stairs uh, going up, the, the typical stairs that you would put it to, to offload people from airplanes, were too small for this plane, and it had no windows. And, of course, we learned later that the North Koreans thought we were spies. I mean, it was the Intelligence Committee. At any rate, we were standing in this doorway at sunset in, in Pyongyang, which has basically no electricity or did have no electricity other than to light the monuments of the dear and great leaders. Uh, and 
you know, and I was thinking, my husband was screaming at me, why are you going? I had four children. Oh, my God. It worked out. Uh, we lived. And it was a very interesting uh, moment uh, to see North Korea. And I'll just tell one other story, which is that one of the members and I decided we would go jogging the first morning. Uh, don't ask. <laughs> so he shows up in his Air Force T-shirt. I said, this is a really bad idea. This is such a bad idea. He said, well, that's the only T-shirt I brought. So we go running around, went down to the lake, and whatever we did. You know, no, one, no eye contact, nothing. Just long lines of people at bus stops. And that was interesting. Where were they going? And so being me, I said, let's just kind of look behind the line. And there was the guy with the, uh, you know, with the assault weapon pol policing the line from behind. And I don't know where they were going. Um, it all, it was interesting, somewhat disturbing. Obviously, these folks have a much better insight in this, uh, but into this, but um, very informative. And so I'm delighted, Gene, that you are opening a bigger window than the one I've just described uh, into the Hermit Kingdom and have brought people with firsthand knowledge. This is what the Wilson Center does. We really have ground truth, and we're delighted this morning to share it with you. So over to you, Gene. Thank you so much for that very insightful and entertaining anecdote. I think that anytime any of us go to North Korea, the, the glimpses that we bring back are always fascinating. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome you to today's event focused on a topic that has really been central to my career, my former career as a journalist and my career now as an analyst, and that is North Korea. And I have to say that uh, for, foreign, for foreign correspondents, North Korea really is one of those coveted plum assignments. It's one of the most fascinating assignments that you could get as a foreign co uh, correspondent. But it's also one of the most frustrating and infuriating assignments you could ever be given because of the lack of access, the lack of reliable information. And so most journalists are resigned and relegated to covering North Korea from the outside. And I have to say that in some ways that is the easier way to cover North Korea. Uh, maybe if you're lucky, you'll be invited in by the government on a trip. Maybe you'll sneak in as a tourist. But there are some of us who have undertaken the effort to get on the ground. It's not easy. And I have to say it brings a whole other set of challenges that you cannot even comprehend when you're covering it from the outside. The surveillance, the concerns about security, and the questions and criticism from all quarters about how you're not getting the story. I, however, would not trade that experience. It was tough, but I wouldn't trade it for anything because being on the ground, what I like to say in between the theater, gave me an understanding of the 25 million people who live there, what their lives are like, what it is they want, how they think, a kind of nuanced understanding that you simply cannot get if you're looking at it from the outside. Uh, and so what I want to do in my new incarnation as a recovering journalist is to A, help journalists understand what it is they're seeing. Because as Congresswoman Harmon mentioned, you go there and it's such a mystery. Um, I want journalists at this particular time when so few of us are getting into the country, uh, as we mentioned, there's a State Department travel ban that prohibits most of us from going into North Korea. We want to make sure that our journalism is as solid and as nuanced and as 
complete as possible. So we've got two objectives with this program. One of them is to make sure that the journalists, including Ed, who travels there regularly, understand what they're seeing and can put it into context. But I also want them to bring North Korea to you so that you have a richer understanding of who the people are and that bringing Korea to us here in DC, looking at it from a distance, will help us understand the situation, all the du diplomacy that's going on. Because we have to remember that there are 25 million lives at stake on the North, 50 million in the South, and that their future is at stake with this nuclear diplomacy. And so I'm absolutely delighted. This is just an all-star panel uh, of journalists, veteran journalists who've done absolutely incredible work. Uh, I think Congressman Harmon uh, gave a great introduction. We will start with um, Ed Jones. Now, Ed and I have, we've actually worked together on assignment for, I think, 10 years. You were just a wee lad when I first <laughs> met you. Uh, but uh, he's somebody whose work I've long admired, and it's been fun to be with him in Seoul and Pyongyang on assignment. Um, Katie, as you know, uh, former Asia bureau chief for Sky News, now working on a book that brings in some of her reporting and research from Russia, China, and North Korea. And she'll share a little bit about her experience covering it as a foreign correspondent on one of those government-organized junkets. And Dr. Kim, who is, uh, she has a PhD in North Korean studies, so she's an example of a journalist who went further and did her homework uh, on North Korea, so extremely erudite when it comes to North Korea, and has, has made 13 trips to North Korea, most recently in November of 2018. And I wanted her to share the South Korean perspective, what it's like to be a South Korean journalist in North Korea. And I want to, um, I, wa I don't want to forget uh, the team that helped us pull this off, our interns, Jihan, who's an aspiring journalist from South Korea, Yesul, who I don't know if she's sitting in the back, I think, also another aspiring journalist, and Sungwook, our intern at the Korea Center, who has made all of the legwork possible, Korean Air and the Korea Foundation, which made it possible for us to bring our sleepy speakers here from Seoul. So, um, th and, and to the Asia Program and the Wilson Center, uh, who've been our partners in staging this program. So I lied to you on the announcement. We will not have refreshments afterward. We put them out early. It's a bit, there is probably some coffee out there, but it is a busy day at the Wilson Center today. Um, I want to encourage you to come back for the afternoon session on the horizon in which all the program directors will be sharing what their what their foreign policy uh, predictions are for 2020. So it's a busy day at the Wilson Center, but stick around for the afternoon session as well. We'll have um, uh, uh, quite a lot going on at the Wilson Center. Now, I'm going to try to keep us on time. We'd like to start with a photo presentation. And this is actually, Ed is going to share his photos from Pyongyang and from Seoul. Uh, and, and we'll do this in conversation. Uh, and hopefully we'll keep, uh, we'll, we'll stick the time to the time. Do you want to do it from here? Do you want to speak at the? Um, whatever, you, whatever you think. Maybe I'm in the way of the screen. Yes, so I think stand here. Okay. And I will sit here. All right. We will leave some time for Q&A. Uh, yes, but without further ado, please um, give a warm welcome to Ed Jones. Sure. Yeah. I'm going to be weighing in with commentary. So. <laughs> Am I in the way? Can we, should we turn some of these lights out? Is that possible? Sure. Yeah. Oh, by magic. Maybe I'll use one of the mics. Can I borrow? One? I got one. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
didn't use our pictures. Yeah. This would come out really blurry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So set the scene for us, Ed. Okay. So um, uh, a great deal of our time is spent in Pyongyang, um, and there's a need to uh, to 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 try and show a sense of of daily life, uh, which involves essentially looking for for moments that we can relate to and that might be indicators of the state of the economy um, and the state of the country as a whole. And what drew you to, can you hear me? You can hear me, right? What drew you to this particular little boy? What, does it, what, are, you, what, can, what are you telling us with this particular? Well, this, uh, this, this location is Kim Il-sung Square, which is the central square in Pyongyang. Um, and it's a place that, that I spend a lot of time in. Um, one, because it's, uh, it's an easy place to get to, and two, because it doesn't, there's no pre-approval required to visit it. So on any given day, you can see people using the square for different purposes. It might be a rehearsal for an upcoming parade, or it could be uh, children, like in the background, on their scooters, or it could be people walking dogs, things like that. Um, the reason why I was drawn to this this boy in his electric car is because this is quite an unusual scene for Pyongyang. Uh, the, the 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 advent of, of electric toys like this uh, finding its way to a place like North Korea is in many ways uh, illustrative of the the country's economy um, and the emergence of what some would call a, a middle class. And I will point out, and uh, Katie, you're also welcome to point out, there are some markings on the ground usually can see. I don't know if you can see them in the pictures. Markings on the ground. That That's right. For These markings on the ground are there to uh, facilitate the positions <coughs> of, uh, of the participants of military parades, mass dances, things that mark uh, important anniversaries and which are commemorated on that square. So we're going to put uh, some of a medley of images I think there's always a lot to look at. We want you to kind of take this in. If you've got burning questions, you can shout some of them out, but we're gonna try to go through them fairly quickly. And I'm going to point out a couple things um, in these photos. And Ed, feel free to talk about any of these pictures that, now I think the, sure. the, the large image here, is there a pointer on this? Let's see if I can figure this out. Yeah, <laughs> tell us a bit about this. Uh, so this is uh, a couple who are engaged to be married and it's not, unusual to find couples like this around Pyongyang having their wedding photos, their pre-wedding photos taken. Um, and it, it always offers a, a really endearing look at the people who live in this city. In this case, a military officer and his, his, his bride um, enjoying a moment that I think is, is lighthearted and puts a human face on, on, on the city. And this picture up here, what drew you to this image? Um, th again, uh, I'm, I'm trying to humanize uh, the subjects in a way that, that we can relate to. Um, I, I like the way that the people on the, the man on the right is, is shielding his friend from the rain. <laughs> uh, we have the man on the second left who's carrying his, his daughter, presumably. Um, but we've all been there uh, in the rain, having to get from one place to the other, getting completely soaked. Uh, and I think it's... Um, it's, it offers an endearing look at, at, at the people of Pyongyang. And I think that this refers back to what Congresswoman Harmon was talking about, the lack of lights. 
Tell mm -hmm. me a little bit, so for me when I was there, the lights pretty routinely went out at 10 p.m., around 10 p.m. Yeah, I think- Has that changed or? I think the, uh, the, the Pyongyang's uh, electricity uh, or, or, or lack thereof is, is reasonably well documented by visiting journalists on big uh, group trips, for example. Um, but this image uh, really shows the importance of the iconography of, of the, the late leaders, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, and the need to, uh, to, to have them illuminated at all times. This, uh, this is a, a water park, which is also a, a familiar stop on, on most tourist itineraries, and is another place that, that I can revisit quite easily. Uh, and I'm always on the lookout for something truly candid, and, and which people with a with a, a mild understanding of North Korea can look at and see for themselves that it's completely unscripted and goes against whatever, uh, whatever they, might, they might understand about the country. Um, so yeah, moments like this are, are really what I work towards in terms of catching candid uh, daily life images. That's really the backbone of, of our coverage there. And so for me, it was <coughs> going to the ice skating rink because mm. for the North Koreans, when they're skating for the first time, they can't control their expressions. There are a lot of people who say everything's fake. Right. It is very challenging to distinguish between what's fake and what's real. Right. Um, but you do always try to get natural expressions. I think also this says something, it's very important for the regime, for Kim Jong-un, mm. to give his people these the elites, this kind of leisure activity. Uh, and so we're certainly seeing a lot of this kind of construction. How did they think of you? How close were you? I mean, you look like you're right. I, I was very close indeed. And actually the reason why the, the gentleman's uh, at, at the bottom is slightly cramped is because I was responding very quickly. Um, but again, this daily life approach is, is really the backbone of our coverage for the reason that we have to start somewhere. Um, and I think uh, showing the lives of ordinary people, regardless of their social class, is uh, absolutely the, 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 the best way to start. And so we would clarify that these are elites who have access to a place like this. I think yes, I think it's fair to say that that they are uh, from a, a class that is privileged enough to visit uh, such a place. Okay, so much going on in this. Um, tell us about this, uh, the main picture you have here. Well, one of our uh, one of our, our our ongoing efforts is to get as much access as we can to the to the houses and the lives of ordinary people. Um, and this was in November, I think, a couple of years ago, when we requested to. To, to join a family who were making kimchi, which is, uh, it's at that time of the year that the, the most kimchi important is staple, yeah, right? Vegetable. Um, and we were we were taken to this apartment, um, at which point we were presented with a delicious spread of food, and uh, much singing and frivolity ensued. Um, it's impossible to <laughs> say whether this is um, whether this kind of apartment is is standard, whether its contents are, are characteristic of, of other apartments in Pyongyang. But regardless of that, it's still, I think, a rather interesting look at a family situation uh, in an apartment in Pyongyang. Yeah, I would say it's extremely aspirational um, mm. and perhaps somewhat of a showcase. Mm. Uh, but that is how the North Koreans, they want to show us the best. They will take us to the very best Absolutely. and set it up in the most aspirational way for the photo. That's something for us to keep in mind. Yes, and as obviously as guests in 
in North Korea, we will be treated to that, that kind of uh, approach. And I think that this is always very interesting. Of course, this is how most people get their news, is through these, these newsstands. South Korea certainly had a lot of these newsstands where people got their news back in the day. I think, Professor Moon, you would, you would appreciate this picture here of artists creating um, paintings, I think it is. Was this taken at the Mansedes Art Studio? That's right, yeah. Right. yeah. Absolutely. And then tell us about this one, because this detail here is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it looks slightly dark on the screen, but, but essentially this is, um, this is a burger restaurant uh, not far from the, the newly opened Bromyong Street. And it's, uh, it's striking to me because it's a scene that I think uh, would not look out of place in, in any capital city, which is that you have a customer multitasking with a mobile phone to her ear. And, uh, and, then, and then on the other side, uh, a staff... Uh, member delivering some rather tasty looking drinks. And were you, uh, is this a restaurant that foreigners are allowed to go to? Yes, in the sense that we were there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I ask because there were a lot of restaurants I went to that foreigners were not allowed to go to. Uh, and so that's one of the benefits of being on the ground and having a bureau is you are treated like a local to some degree. Absolutely. And so that's why I asked that question because there are many places that foreigners are not allowed to go to. No, that absolutely. We have but uh, one thing that's that's interesting about Pyongyang is, as you will remember, is that uh, it's quite hard to know where the restaurants are. If you're driving around, there is not the kind of advertising uh, or, or f restaurant facades that you might expect to see in in another city. So it's hard to know what is uh, accessible to us and what's not. Um, this restaurant was a response uh, uh, to, 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 uh, to a request for a restaurant. And is this Kwangbo supermarket? This is the Kwangbo supermarket, yeah, uh, department store. Um, and uh, so from I, it looks like there are quite a lot of North Korean goods on the shelves now. Yeah, so the, the food section certainly is... Uh, is predominantly stocked with, with North Korean goods. There are, I think, two more levels to that department store, uh, which sells everything from solar panels to washing machines to fridges to electric bicycles um, to, to, to luxury goods like watches and, and clothes. So this is a joint venture, or it was a joint venture with a Chinese company. And when it first opened, I would say it was 95% Chinese products, or I should say products brought in from China, including I show pictures of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, which is an American beer. Uh, they had Doritos, uh, all kinds of American products that were brought in from China. And I think the, r the reverse is now true because of sanctions. There's very little trade coming in from China and a lot more in that time period of um, homegrown products. Mm. But it's also part of this, uh, this, this coverage that we need to look at, um, uh, sort of transactional um, aspects of daily life, anything to do with the economy or, uh, or the way that people live. Okay, what do we have here? Um, so here we have in the bottom right uh, uh, Mount Pektu, which is the spiritual uh, home of, of North Korea and to which some 100,000 people will make uh, pilgrimages in any given year. They're making pilgrimages right now. I think I saw a report in KCNA mm. saying children were making a, is it 250-mile journey? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, which when you think about it, in these conditions in the middle of winter, absolutely extreme, mm. but designed to really reinforce uh, the Kim family right to rule. Uh, so that's why Pektisan is so important for... And it's not like you, you would just turn up at, at Mount Pektu and then go away again. It's, uh, it's part of a months-long, uh, what I understand to be a months-long uh, uh, trip whereby you will learn about 
the exploits of Kim Il-sung as a guerrilla fighter um, against the Japanese and where you will visit various revolutionary sites and, and learn about revolutionary history. And what is this up here? I can't really see the image well. Um, top left? Yes. Uh, this is the, um, if I remember correctly, it's the Cholima steel plant in Nampal. Oh, okay. Or near Nampal. Okay. Um, and on the right? Um, top right, that's, um, that's Sinwiju. That's a street scene in Sinwiju. Um, yeah. So it's very hard for Americans to get to Shiniju for, for whatever reason. Um, they don't allow Americans to take the train sometimes, but very rarely. So it's, it's hard to get for Americans to get to Shiniju. I mean, a small detail about that picture is the, the, the chap in the middle is looking at his phone. And I know it's, it's really unremarkable to, to most of us, but I think the, uh, the increasing use of mobile phones in, in North Korea is, is interesting. And, and something that we should be uh, paying attention to. Absolutely, it's a whole other session. I mm, think it is, yeah. Okay. Um, so obviously, uh, life in Pyongyang and, and much of North Korea revolves around um, uh, responsibilities towards uh, taking part in public events. Um, this is a mass dance, and these people are students, and obviously, uh, on any given anniversary or important date, uh, these sorts of... Uh, um, events will be put on. I'm not sure what song they're dancing to, but every single song has a prescribed set of steps, kind of like square dancing. So when that song comes on, they know exactly what steps. If you're, uh, if you're watching TV in North Korea, you will see tutorials on the entertainment channel to show you the steps. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not an unfamiliar site, particularly to, to, to tourists and, and visitors to North Korea. But it's, uh, I, I feel like it's an important part of daily life in the sense that, that people have these obligations. Um, and at any given, on any given anniversary, people will be expected to take part. Uh, and this is an extension of that. On the bottom left, you have people lining up for a mass dance on Kim Il-sung Square, uh, and, and same above. Uh, the top left is, is a propaganda flag-waving troop, uh, which you see in the mornings around the city. Um, bottom, bottom right is, is the moment afterwards, and I, I'm drawn to this moment because you can see how exhausting it must be to take part. I mean, these people have incredibly hectic and, and full schedules, um, and it can't be easy to... So when you, and, and this is probably true for you, when you're called to uh, an event with Kim Jong-un, mm. and they don't tell us, right? It's kept secret, but you're expected to be there hours in advance. And so these performers, if they're performing for an event with Kim Jong-un, would have been there hours in advance and be they would have been there for hours on end indeed i mean so it's it's certainly it's certainly not an easy undertaking physically and 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 whatnot um and i think you can see that reflected on their faces but uh what's important to remember is despite the 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 exhaustion that you can see uh if you're sp speaking to any one of these people they will tell you that that they are honored to have this opportunity to perform okay so now we transition into South Korea. Uh, th the top is Pyongyang, the bottom is Seoul. So tell us about this series, Parallel Lives. Okay, well that, that series will start, um, we have a few slides okay. from <laughs> South Korea first and then we will start. But uh, essentially we will end this, present, this presentation with a series of portraits from North and South. This is Gyeongbokgung Palace in Seoul. It's a, it's a, it's a, a a central landmark in the Gwangwoman area. And uh, the, the 
the skyline here with the traditional roofs uh, and then the, the modern office buildings rising behind it is, I think, emblematic of, of South Korea as a whole. There is this preservation of, of culture and tradition that has managed to, has managed to endure um, alongside uh, an incredibly rapidly expanding economy. So do we think that these three women in Hamburg are Korean? It's possible that they're tourists. I, I don't know, but uh, Gyeongbuk Gong allows free entry to people who are prepared to put on a traditional S exactly. dress. Exactly. So just FYI, if you want free entrance, put on, you can rent one of these for about $5. <laughs> it's a, it's an, I feel like it's a nice touch, but it's also, uh, it's, uh, it's a I feel like it's a good way of preserving uh, this, this element of, of history. One thing I like about this picture is it does point out you will not see anything, you won't see this type of palace, of course, in Pyongyang because the Joseon dynasty uh, was based in Seoul. And so there are kind of competing histories in North Korea and South Korea. S North Korea will focus on a different part of its history when Pyongyang or capitals in North Korea, whether it's Kaesong or um, other capitals in North Korea, dominated um, those kingdoms. And so it's very interesting. You have two competing versions of Korean history in North Korea and South Korea, two competing versions of their own ancient history. Uh, so I think that this, you look at this and you know immediately it's Seoul because it's the palace. Pyongyang has a couple of, of city gates still uh, surviving. I don't know if they've been rebuilt or, or what, but you know, it is possible to see some, certainly. Okay. Um, mobile phone use in South Korea is obviously uh, up there with, with anywhere else in the world, um, arguably argu arguably uh, above. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a dominating factor in most people's lives, I think. Again, daily scenes from Seoul. Um, uh, what is going on on the upper right hand side? Uh, <laughs> so when... Uh, are those wigs? They are. <laughs> when Donald Trump was inaugurated, uh, there was a waxwork museum that 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 installed this new figurine or figure and um, and allowed people to pose with wigs on. And can a South Korean tell me if this is a a, a, a school uniform that they would wear today, or is it looks so retro? Yeah, it's a. What was that? I think it's just somewhere okay. in the back. Uh, yeah, this is, um, you can, just like in Gongbok Gong Palace, where you can rent these hanbok dresses, this is uh, a similar thing. Uh, from what I understand, these uniforms are, are characteristic of, I think, the 1950s or 60s. This is a, a, an LGBT pride event. And it's something that, when I arrived in Seoul six years ago, uh, was a very sort of fringe, um, small-scale event. And it's grown into this enormous... Um, this enormous event. This is not something we would see in North Korea. No, certainly not. I mean, the, the masses of people that you would find in, in North Korea would tend to be much more organized. And <laughs> <laughs> There's that. <laughs> but, you know, this is obviously a symbol of, of the freewheeling economy that South Korea is. Uh, and, and alongside that economy, uh, things like freedom of speech and, and, and whatnot have evolved with it. And this is a park in, in the Yeouido district of Seoul. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so moving into parallel lives. Yep. This was a, a tricky project to undertake, but it was the natural progression of, of a portrait series that I started in, in North Korea, uh, essentially with the aim of, of having access to people. Taking portraits was a way of working uh, 
was a way of working to the expectations of our hosts and also uh, it gave us an opportunity to 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 talk to people um, and it was it worked well uh, and it helps to build up relationships with with people this lady at the top is a tour guide at the Juche tower um, and this lady at the bottom is a is a tour guide at the uh, seven uh, sorry the 63 tower in Yodo The idea is really to find a backdrop that is as similar as possible, because I think that's the only way to to uh, to, to to marry the images together. <coughs> I've tried others, others that haven't worked have been uh, less aesthetically similar, and and they they lose that that sort of continuity that lends itself to the uh, to the telling of this story. So, how much does it cost to? go to a shooting range in North Korea versus South Korea, do you remember? I remember the cost of the bullets. I think the bullets are uh, $2 each. Um, yeah, I think so. It's one or $2. Um, in the South, I can't remember, I'm afraid. This is, th these two soldiers uh, live out their lives meters apart from each other, but to make these photos happen was a 2,000 kilometer journey that involved multiple planes and buses and taxis and visas and passports, uh, stamps, and, uh, and a lot of money. Have you been up to the DMZ since they loosened the rules a bit? Um, I have once, yes. Uh, but it's, the DMZ, it's always hit and miss with regards to what you'll see there. Sometimes there will be a lot, of, uh, a lot of people. You might see tourists on the other side, for example, and other times it'll be rather empty. So, so I think most of us have been to the DMZ on both sides. Mm. It's very interesting. I don't know if you have this experience from the north. The North Korean soldier will tell you, wave at them on the south side because they're so yeah. mean, they won't wave back. And on the South Korean side, they'll say, if they wave at you, do not wave back. Well, they, I think they tell you going in, they give you this sort of, uh, this intro that, that encourages you not to make any sudden movements. Um, it's, quite, it's quite intimidating, actually. Whereas, I think, uh, I speak for most people when I say that the experience on the northern side is somewhat more relaxed. So I will be hopefully bringing the, um, the commander of the UN Battalion from the South side. Um, to the Wilson Center in the spring, so please come back for that to hear about what it's like for him interacting or not interacting with uh, his counterparts on the North Korean side. Okay, so I think we've got Kwangbok again, and is it yeah. Emart or Emart? It's I think it's e an e it's an Emart. Yeah. yeah, well spotted. Uh, yeah, it's really what's tricky as well is to find is to explain this concept to the subjects in these pictures. Um, in the, the, the portraits from the north actually happened first. Uh, that was, again, for the reasons of, of meeting people, speaking to people, and engaging with uh, members of the public. It was a natural progression to then try and do something similar in the south. But what that meant was often having to explain uh, what I was trying to do. And a lot of people were incredibly reluctant to then take part. Many, On both many sides. Um, actually, in, on the northern side, people were more amenable. I think, I think if you were to walk up and just start shooting, uh, that would make most people uneasy. But if you engage them and if you ask for permission, uh, there is a curiosity that I think lends itself to, to getting the, the picture. Whereas in the south, um, the thought of being associated with, with a project on North Korea like this is um, 
makes people very hesitant. So you've got um, two staff, North Korean staff, working with you, is that right? Uh, that's right, yes, yes we do. As we would in any country, we hire local staff and they are, um, they, they are essential to facilitating our, our work there. And how do they introduce you to the North Koreans that you want to photograph? Well, quite often I will introduce myself. Um, I, will, I might let them know just so that I don't freak anybody out. Um, and then I might go and talk to them and, or ask them something and ask them if I can take a picture. My Korean is not, is not amazing, but it, it's enough to, to do that. Do we get to hear it? Aniamnida. <laughs> <laughs> so with me, they would always introduce me as Miguk AP Tongshin, and I would, so this, the American AP uh, news agency, and I would say, right. oh, stop using the American, because that just means well, for us <laughs> it's supposed against me. Right, for us, the, the issue, or well for me, the issue is that uh, they'll introduce me as the, the, the British photojournalist from the French news agency living <laughs> in Seoul, and, and the Koreans just struggle to get their head around that <laughs> concept. Uh, Um, well, the the idea really is to present them and see what people make of them. I am simply not uh, capable of, of analyzing them in a way that someone who is uh, who is deeply knowledgeable about both countries would would do. Uh, on the one hand, it might say to some per somebody that uh, that on both sides of the DMZ there are there are similar people who have similar similar hopes and desires for their lives in terms of uh, feeding their families. And on the other, on the other hand, it might, um, it might provide a revealing glimpse of, of, of the backdrops to the lives that these people have. We should acknowledge the disparity in the economy. This perhaps does not add cover the range of that disparity. There are disparities between the rich and poor in both South and North Korea, but it's extreme in North Korea. I mean, we're talking about countries where the uh, the um, per capita GDP per year is 33,000 in South Korea, according to the CIA, and 1,700 in North Korea. So what you're seeing on the top is the elite of the elite, the people who live in Pyongyang, the two million who really are the, el the, the upper echelon. And I have to say, even though it looks like their lives are normal, life is very hard even in Pyongyang. So I just want to... Um, it might not be easy to capture in this particular series, but we can't capture everything in every image, right? So this is where I come into it, and I try to provide a little bit of that context uh, so that we can put it into the proper, so that you have the larger picture. Yeah. Uh, but the fact is, there are people who do live like this, and these are the people, that man in the on the top, I was going to say in the north, um, that Kim Jong-un has to keep happy. And so it also helps us understand why he needs luxury goods why he needs to import all of that, why he needs to produce them, it's to keep them happy. That's one, one thing I might add as well is, of course, the subject or the topic of reunification is, is uh, ever-present in, in both North and South. Uh, putting people together like this in a way that they can't do in real life uh, was really a way to, to imagine what that reunification might look like. And will these subjects see the series? Certainly in the South. In the North, um, I, I often, when I undertook the initial portrait series in the north, I would often visit 
the, the subjects who I'd captured with copies for them. Um, in the South, uh, I, I did something similar. Um, and by virtue of, of these images being published in various outlets, uh, certainly people in the South will have seen. The uh, other thing I wanted to mention, one very important thing is that the North Koreans, especially people like this guy who probably or perhaps has spent some time in China, many of the elites do spend some time in China or overseas, and when they shop, when they're in China, they buy Kore South Korean goods. So they're exposed to South Korean goods when they're overseas. They love South Korean goods, to be honest. I used to have to bring in South Korean goods that I bought in China into the Pyongyang Bureau um, because they hated when I did brought non-South Korean goods. And so in a sense, what I, I want us to see here too is that th they are trying to mimic that. They Kim Jong-un is trying to copy this and reproduce that for those elites who have developed a taste for that. Many of the products, and this is something I've been meaning to do, is a side-by-side -side comparison. They're exact copies of South Korean. If we were to zoom in, you would find exact copies of South Korean snacks and products on those North Korean shelves. Um, and so, you know, we're not gonna cover everything, but I acknowledge your discomfort, because I understand it completely, uh, but hopefully we'll be able to get to that. Does that answer a little bit of your question, or? The scale. <laughs> no, no, I, I appreciate the, the comment. Well, let's let's move forward. Did you have a comment? I, we're gonna yeah, yeah. keep going. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So that's uh, you know, let's yeah. And so I think we should uh, I think we should acknowledge that, and I I will acknowledge that that what we're showing is yeah. This is. The one percent, the one percenters in Pyongyang. Whereas I think this arguably, is very much the middle class. Also, if you look at the, the picture from the south, you know this supermarket is is not particularly cheap. Uh, the clothes that this gentleman is wearing are not particularly cheap. This person also represents uh, a fairly elite, yeah. elite part of South Korean society. And South Korea has developed so much that it does have a big middle class now. It used to be, of course, when I was a child, it was very obvious that it was a s uh, country of haves and have-nots. And so as their economy has grown, they've developed a bigger middle class as well. So, uh, But there I we should acknowledge that there's poverty in South Korea and hardship in South Korea as well. Pardon? So, okay, school schoolgirls? Yeah. Uh, one is, uh, is on in the north is... Uh, is performing a traditional folk routine, and the one at the bottom is performing, uh, or has just performed a, a K-pop routine. <laughs> yeah. This is, uh, the top is, is following a, uh, a military parade uh, at which various uh, weapons and munitions and, and battalions of troops will have been displayed. And at the bottom, this is a, a rally in favor of the redeployment of tactical nuclear weapons to South Korea. This is a food factory. The top one is in, uh, I, I, if I remember, this is in Wonsan, which is a coastal town on, on the east, on North Korea's east coast. And this is a spam factory outside of Seoul. That's interesting. So one of the things I noticed on my last trip to North Korea was that the North Koreans had produced their own spam, their own version of spam called ham. Right. So <laughs> but it was interesting. So they're, they're, you know, they're copying all of this. Yeah, but factory work is something that obviously keeps the, I mean. Uh, Oops. That that is, factory work is something that that a lot of people uh, might do at one point in their lives, and and obviously it's the uh, it's the backbone of the country in terms of uh, producing foodstuffs and whatnot. Okay. 
uh, these are students. The 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 one in at the top from the north is wearing a, a uniform, which I understand students in Pyongyang are obligated to wear. It looks this like that old retro uniform in South Korea. That it does a little. Uh, the the one at the bottom is standing in the the, the student area of Sinchon in Seoul, and is obviously wearing whatever he wants. This is the water park that we saw a picture from earlier. Both staff members. And again, uh, I do want to put into perspective the enormous amount of money that is spent on these water parks, mm. uh, just to be the um, <laughs> the devil's advocate, but uh, the enormous amount of money when you don't have basic resources in the rest of the country. You have to remember, we're just looking at Pyongyang. The rest of the country is completely underdeveloped. And um, but it is designed to build a sense of loyalty among those elites that are his power base. Girls roughly around the same age? Yes. Um, I, I believe the one at the bottom is 24 and the one at the top is 22 or 21. And again, I would say that, you know, the um, elites are aware of all of this happening in South Korea. And so Kim Jong-un does feel the pressure to build this for his people as well, for his power base. This is, I mean, that, that, that last one is, uh, if you can go back to it, is uh, interesting simply because if you look at the, the lady from the south, she's covering up her skin because uh, skin care and, and cosmetics and whatnot is, 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 of, is of importance. Whereas in the north, uh, the, the fashion trend, the trends, the fashion styles uh, are completely different. They don't really have sunscreen in North Korea, which is always a concern for me. So it was something I used to bring um, for the North Koreans. But you will s I do think that they tend to be a lot darker because of that than the South Koreans. Quite possibly. This is the, uh, the steel factory near Nampo. And uh, this is a Hyundai steel factory um, outside of Seoul. The the gas station at top is is uh, quite common in North Korea in the sense that most of them are very uh, very new, and very shiny. Um, and I don't know about anyone else, but typically the the petrol stations or gas stations we find uh, in in other parts of the world are are pretty standard. yeah pretty standard and not really seen as something that is. Uh How did you pay for your gas? Um, coupons. Tokens. Coupons. Yeah. So you buy a batch, a book of coupons. Correct. Same restaurant that we saw before. That's right, okay. yes. This is uh this is the Han sorry, the Taedonggang River in, in Pyongyang and the Han River in Seoul. Students. In a computer lab? Yes. And I always point out that uh, it's not a coincidence that she's wearing a winter jacket in that picture in the north because although the, they have electricity in the computer labs, they don't have heat. <coughs> and so it's very, very cold. And often they'll be wearing mittens with the fingers cut off or gloves with the fingers cut off to keep their hands warm. It's extremely mm. cold, despite how uh, upscale it looks. Yeah, but also this project looks at, at people who who I can echo, right? So if I find somebody in the north, I need to be able to find that person in the, in the south and vice versa. Um, being a student in North Korea and having access to a computer lab is, is presumably and, and quite obviously uh, quite a privilege. Um, so, so there we go. Do you want to say something else? Oh well, I was, I was just going to add that, that, that in the south, uh, 
studying is obviously widespread. Most people go to university. Um, and going back to my what I was saying about needing to find uh, backdrops that are as similar as possible, in many ways that narrows down my 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 scope for the people that I can include. Um, Where was the talk image taken? It's at the SciTech Center. Uh, okay, okay, shaped like an atom. That's right. These two people are uh, the, the one at the top is a, a ginseng farmer. The one at the bottom is uh, grows various vegetables. And the fence behind him is the fence of the demilitarized zone on the island of Gyodong, which is next to Kangwa Island, uh, as a, a grouping of islands to the west of Seoul. In the back, behind the gentleman in, in the bottom, there is a landmass uh, beyond the fence, which is North Korea. Okay. So These t and this one at top is is just outside Kaesong. So they live pretty close. I mean, when it rains uh, in, this, in this man's ginseng field, it, it rains in this man's vegetable patch. And when the propaganda speakers, which are not operational at the moment, were, were blasting propaganda from both sides, uh, each of these people will have heard it. How hard is it to get access to these sites? Um, in the south, it's it's very easy. It's it's simply a case of exploring, um, and and looking for people. In the north, uh, we had requested uh, access to a farm, uh, specifically a ginseng farm, uh, and during a visit to <coughs> to uh, to Panmunjom, we also took in a visit to this man's ginseng farm. It was it was relatively easy in that the access was organized for us. So it wasn't like we had to drive around looking for him. So um, Dr. Kim was just pointing out this is probably inside the civilian control line. Um, the bottom one? Yeah. Yes. So you have to go through a checkpoint to get there. Where is it exactly? Where is it? Can you point it out to me so I can? Oh, it's right here. Can you flash forward through it? Can you just scroll to the next image? This is the last one. Oh, this is the last one, is it? Yeah. This is the last one. Yeah? Okay. Thank you so much. Not at all. Thank that you. was, um, and, and like I said, uh, this is only one piece, one small piece of the work that he has done, but given that this is a public forum, I hope that you'll understand that we're, we're only, I want him to show certain images. <laughs> um, but uh, he certainly, you could speak to him afterward, he's certainly seen quite a bit more than what we're seeing on the screen uh, today. So I want to thank you so much, Ed. We're going to move thank on. You. I would like uh, Dr. Kim to show us some of her images from her time in Pyongyang. Yes, go ahead. Yep, go ahead. Why don't we... Um,
in an electric car, if you saw a child in the street and you took a photo mm. without asking permission of the parent, that would be really seen as something not great to do. Mm -hmm. And that's just an example because that's the one photo as your photos. It, it arises in every time one has to make a decision about whether you want to take a photo of everyday life. My concern is that um, the ethics of, uh, of not just photojournalism, but journalism, photojournalism and, uh, are, are sometimes abandoned, not just in North Korea, but in other countries. In countries that are at war, you can, you know, perhaps one can say, that, well, it's good, you know, you need to show these things, you can't actually ask permission. But what's your view on this, and, and how, how do you reconcile the issues of thinking about the ethics of taking photos uh, of individuals, ordinary people, uh, uh, given, given, given your mission? How, how do you deal with that? Well, I think first and foremost, it's important that I abide with the rules and regulations of whichever country I'm working in. Uh, secondly, there is an element of respect that I think needs to be conveyed uh, if the image that I'm taking is not uh, in the immediate public interest. Um, in the case of the, the boy on the electric car, uh, like with most pictures of daily life that I might take in, in North Korea, uh, these present opportunities to talk to people. So I talked to his mother. I played with the child. Um, I engaged with him. He's looking at me because I have a rapport with him. And to that end, uh, I, I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, so, yeah. They know where we're from, because when I introduce myself, I tell them where I'm from. Whether or not they understand what will happen to that picture is, is sort of often beyond the limits of my, my speaking ability. Um, also, the concept of a, of a news agency and a, and a free press and whatever is, um, is maybe uh, not something that, that ordinary North Koreans would understand. Um, but in many cases, uh, people are happy to have their picture taken. They're sometimes honored that their likeness might be shown around the world. Um, so it's a case-by-case case thing. Uh, I think it's a, a great question, and thank you for asking it. I, I hope I've answered it to some extent. Okay, I think we'll have some time for more questions a little bit later, but I do want to um, cover the different aspects of being a foreign correspondent uh, before we move on to more questions. And so, Dr. Kim, if you can share with us what your experience has been like as a South Korean traveling there over the last, as a reporter over the last 20 years, maybe, I think it's been? Because certainly, as a Korean, it must be a different experience than it is for us as Westerners. Yeah, I speak through an interpreter. Mm. Uh, this picture was What's shown here is uh, the uh, pic from November 1st of 2018. Uh, on the right is my colleague uh, who is in Seoul uh, in the broadcasting room. And then on the left is me and my colleague in Pyongyang. Uh, AP 
평양 지국의 도움을 받았는데요. 진리에게 감사합니다. Uh, we were uh, given some help uh, from AP in Pyongyang, uh, thanks to Jean. Uh, 제가 그 남북한 태권도 대표단의 공동 uh, 공연 합동 공연을 취재하기 위해서 북한에 갔을 때였는데요. Uh, 그 실제 이날의 리포트는 uh, 이날 11월 1일부터 남북 군사 당국이 적대적인 행위를 중단하기로 합의한 uh, 시작하기로 한 바로 그날이었습니다. 그날의 평양 분위기를 전하는 리포트를 했습니다. Yeah, so this was a special event actually on November 1st, 2018, the Southern North Korean governments agreed uh, to cease all hostile actions uh, towards one another. And I was also there to cover the uh, joint exercise of the Taekwondo teams, uh, North and South Korea. Uh, but I was really uh, trying to find what's going on in uh, Pyongyang about this time. Mm. Uh, 사실 uh, even for South Koreans, uh, especially if you are a, a member of the press corps, it's really hard to get to North Korea. So this would have been an excellent opportunity for us to get to North Korea. Uh, uh, I was in Pyongyang about 13 times, and including Gaesong and Gumgang Mountain. Uh, all together 25 times. Uh, 가장 처음 방북 취재는 바로 이때였습니다. 1998년 11월인데요. 어, 이때 당시에 금강산으로 가는 호화 유람선을 타고 어, 첫 금강산 관광길에 올랐었습니다. Uh, this is my first visit to North Korea again in November, but in 1998. And this is a 어, 한국인의 입장에서 북한을 취재하는 것은 저는 북한만 취재한다고 생각을 했는데요. 관찰자로서 어, 북한뿐만 아니라 어떤 어, 그들을 통해서 남한 사회의 특성을 발견하고 또한 남북 관계의 특성을 발견한다는 점이 어, 흥미로웠습니다. Uh, I thought I was going up there uh, to see North Korea and what how, what the uh, North Koreans were doing. Uh, so I was there as an observer, but what I ended up was uh, learning more about us in South Korea. Uh, there was a contrast uh, that I learned. Uh, and the uh, special uh, futures uh, of the interaction between yeah. South and North Koreas. Mm -hmm. uh, Uh, 그리고 그 관광객들에게 개방됐던 해변 쪽뿐만 아니라 어, 그동안 관광객들에게 개방되지 않았던 그 산맥 내륙 쪽까지 저희는 들어갈 수 있었습니다. Another change is that uh, initially uh, the beaches were the only areas that we could visit, 
in the Kumgang Mountain area, but later, uh, inner land of the uh, mountains uh, on the other side, uh, we were also allowed to uh, enter into. Yeah. 그래서 오픈됐던 그, 그 해변 쪽과 또그 오픈되지 않았던 내륙 쪽은 굉장히 다른 사회라는 그런 느낌을 받을 정도였습니다. Uh, and then there was a big contrast uh, that I learned. Uh, the beaches which were initially open to us and later the inner lands, uh, there was a big contrast uh, that I saw. 그 금강산에는 한국인 관광객들을 위한 북한 사람들의 일자리가 많이 생겨났고요. Uh, there were many jobs created uh, for North Koreans uh, because South Koreans were visiting Kumgang Mountain. Uh, guide. This was the guide. 그다음에 그 무슨 채소를 재배한다든지. Uh, vegetables were being grown. 네. 그리고 또한 가지 제가 취재했던 부분은 남북 간의 경제 협력에 관한 부분들이 있었습니다. 이곳은 남포에 있었던 있었던 어그 남북 합작 공장입니다. 이 차가 휘파람이라고 하는 그 북한에 생산하던 자동차 공장이었고요. 한번 이 안에서 제가 운전을 해본 적이 있습니다. What you're looking at is a uh, car known as Huiparam, uh, which is translated as a whistle, and it's actually from Nampo City. Uh, it used to be an area where South and North Koreans uh, had a economic cooperation, and we produced the car together. 어, 이곳은 개성인데요. 그 뒤에서 지금 그 근로자들이 하고 있는 일은 마늘 껍질을 까는 일입니다. So this is uh, from Gaesong and uh, it behind me are the laborers uh, who are peeling the garlics. Yeah. 어, 그 무슨 시계를 만드는 공장 이외에 이런 공장도 있었습니다. So uh, in addition to the uh, watchmaking facilities, uh, we had this type of uh, facilities as well. 어, 평양과 남포 그리고 개성 등에서 남북한이 합작을 해서 많은 일들이 벌어지고 있었고요. 그래서 2007년에는 제가 어, 40분짜리 리포타주를 하나 만들기도 했습니다. Uh, this is a reportage that I had uh, worked on. This is a 40-minute footage, and this is from 2007. Uh, back then, in Pyongyang, Nampo, and Gaesong, uh, there were a lot of uh, economic cooperations taking place. 지금은 가동되지 않고 있는 어, 과거 남북한 합작 어, 공장인데요. 여기에서 생산한 것은 이 아랍 그 중동 사람들의 로브인데요. 남한에서 주문을 하고 북한에서 생산을 해서 다시 남한으로 가져와서 아랍으로 생산을 수출을 하는 그런 시스템입니다. Uh, this is a factory that is no longer uh, operating, uh, but uh, this is in North Korea and uh, economic cooperation with South Korea. Uh, what we did was uh, we would the South Koreans uh, would put in the order, uh, North Koreans would produce them, and then they would send them back to South Korea. In turn, we would send it back. Uh, we would export these uh, to uh, Arabia somewhere. Uh, 그때 그 용천이라고 하는 신의주에서 가까운 도시에서 엄청난 폭발 사고가 났습니다. 여기에서 기차역에서 그 바로 직후였고 우리 그 노동자 그 노동 단체의 대표들이 어, 북한에 그 의약품을 전달을 했습니다. 저는 여기에서 바로 이 자리가 여기 조선중앙텔레비전 방송국인데요. 방송국에서 어, 이 용천 그 구호품을 전달했다는 소식을 어, 저, 어, 전할 수 있었지만 실제 
용천의 그 자료 화면은 아마 AP가 찍은 사진을 활용했었던 것 같습니다. So uh, this is from 2004. Uh, uh, in May, uh, we had a uh, Labor uh, Day. Uh, but this was uh, not too uh, distant after the uh, explosion that took place in Yongcheon uh, near Shinuju area. And so we uh, were delivering uh, quite a bit, a bit of a, uh, medical supplies. And what you're looking at is actually from the Joseon Jungang uh, station. Uh, I believe uh, they had actually used the AP uh, photo instead of uh, the photos that we provided at the time. 어, 북한이 보다 적대적으로 느끼고 있는 한국의 언론인의 입장으로서는 그 외신 기자들에 비해서 어, 접근성은 좀더 떨어졌던 것 같습니다. 하지만 우리가 같은 정체성과 공동의 경험을 공유한 그 사람 그 같은 어떤 민족으로서 좀더 관찰은 용이하지 않았나 싶습니다. Uh, so uh, as uh, South Koreans, uh, our press was actually uh not as welcomed as uh, foreign press uh, had been. So our access was uh, somewhat more limited uh, than uh, what was given to the foreign uh, press corps. However, uh, since we do ha share the same identity and then uh, we have experiences uh, that are quite similar in certain ways, so I think it was easier for us to see uh, the differences and also have a better observation into their lives. Uh, 그 남북 정상회담을 앞두고 그 한국의 예술단이 북한에 가서 공연을 한 적이 있었는데요. 이때는 제가 기자로서가 아니라 중계 방송을 총괄하는 사람으로서 평양을 갔었습니다. 이때 당시에 김정은이 이 공연에 왔었어요. 그래서 저는 바로 어 포인터 어. 요쯤에서 여 위에 있던 김정은을 볼수 있었습니다. 그런데 정작 남쪽에서 갔던 취재 기자들은 이 자리에 들어가지 못했습니다. So uh, what you have uh, just uh, looked at is the entertainers uh, from South Korea. Uh, this was uh, prior to the South and North Korean uh, summit uh, meeting uh, taking place. I was not there as a uh, press, uh, but actually uh, as a person to coordinate uh, the whole event. And uh, at the uh, event, broadcast, broadcast for the ah. recording. I was uh, coordinating the broadcasting uh, for the <laughs> recording. And uh, at the top, actually, in the second row, uh, there was uh, Jung Eun Kim, uh, Kim Jong Un, uh, sitting there. And right below him was uh, myself. And uh, I was perhaps the only person who was actually able to observe him directly uh, from where I was sitting. Mm. In South Korean journalists were not allowed in. So this is Seoul now, uh, switching back, and uh, this is our company, uh, NBC. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the person that you're looking at in the uh, middle uh, is the uh, person who is the head of the sports authorities uh, from North Korea and the remaining behind him are also members of North Korean authorities. Uh, we were having holding a taekwondo exhibition and at the time I was in charge of 
coordinating the exhibition. 네, 여기 조금 예민합니다만은 여기에 등장하는 사람들을 보면 남북이 행사를 할때그 성격을 알 수가 있습니다. 어, 한국의 그 보안 요원들이 곳곳에 있고요. 북한의 보안 요원들이 이곳에 있습니다. So uh, behind actually uh, surrounding the, uh, the, these members are uh, in the first uh, uh, layer uh, are South Korean uh, security agents and then behind them are the North Korean uh, security agents. 어, 이때 그 소방서, 경찰, 교통통제 이 모든 그 다음에 심지어는 북한과 통신하는 그 통신망 이런 것들을 컨트롤을 했어야 하는데요. So at the time, uh, we had a lot of things to run uh, and to control, including a fire department, police, and communications uh, with North Korea. 아, 시간이 너무 많이 갔는데 그 북한에 갔을 때 가장 큰 문제는 남한으로 통하는 직통 전화가 없다는 겁니다. 방송을 해야 되는데 직통 전화가 연결되지 않는 것이 어떤 그 남북한 사이의 그 현실이라고 할 수가 있겠습니다. 어, 진이 거기서 미국으로 바로 통화하죠. 호텔에서. 우리는 할수 없어요. Uh, so the biggest difficulty uh, or the challenge that we were facing when we were in North Korea was that we were not able to directly communicate uh, with uh, South Korea and I think that kind of uh, speaks volume as to the relationship that South and North Korea are having. So uh, perhaps Jean uh, has a better uh, chance uh, when she's communicating with the, the US. So if to clarify, we weren't able to communicate between South Korea and North Korea either from North Korea. You can call, I could call New York or Beijing or Bangkok, but not South Korea. Yeah. However, I did manage to find a way for my staff in North Korea to call me when I was in South Korea. I can't reveal how, but there were, there are, there were ways. Uh, uh, of course, uh, one way uh, of a direct communication between uh, from North Korea to South Korea is if I have a permission from both governments. 어, 마지막으로 제가 만나 제가 했던 인터뷰 가운데 가장 그 감정적으로 어, 감동적이었던 두 건을 소개해드리려고 합니다. Uh, lastly, uh, two interviews uh, which was quite moving uh, for me. Uh, I would like to talk on that. 아, 이분은 북한 김일성 대학의 교수이고 이분은 남쪽에 있는 그의 어머니입니다. 50년 만에 만났습니다. Uh, on the left, uh, you're looking at two people who met uh, at after 50 years, uh, and uh, the uh, gentleman is actually a uh, professor and son, a professor of Kim Il-sung uh, University, and uh, to the right is uh, his uh, mother uh, from South. Uh, uh, 북한, 에, 그 사람의 엄마인데요. 어머니인데요. 이 사람은 천, 2000년 남북 정상회담 이후에 북한으로 송환됐습니다. Uh, to the right is his uh, mother and uh, Kim Sun Myung 
has uh, since uh, been returned uh, to North Korea. 어, 평양의 그의 집에서 평양은 어, 이들에게 그 차관급이 거주하던 아파트를 선물을 했고 어, 그한 30년 젊은 새 부인을 얻어 주었습니다. Uh, so he returned to North Korea, and uh, he, in uh, North Korea, uh, he was given a housing uh, that was also uh, at the same level as an uh, undersecretary. And uh, to the right of him, uh, he is sitting his uh, new wife, uh, who is about 30 years younger than him. 하지만 그는 굉장히 그 남한에 있던 사람들을 그리워했고 그가 원하던 자유 왕래는 얻지 못했습니다. Uh, he did actually uh, speak fondly of uh, people in South Korea. However, uh, he was not allowed a free access to South Korea after that. 50년 만에 어머니를 만났던 이조 교수는 다시는 어머니를 만나지 못했습니다. Uh, you're looking at Professor Cho, who had met his mother after 50 years, but that was the final meeting that he would have with his mother. Uh, 제가 어머니를 만난 그 다음 해에 평양에 가서 조주경 교수를 만났습니다. I met uh, Professor Cho one year after he had met his uh, mother. 예, 김일성 대학인데요. 그는 어머니에게 편지를 쓰고 있고, 어, 미안합니다. 예, 어머니에게 편지를 제 노트에 썼고요. 어머니에게 전달해달라고 해서 제가 사진을 찍어서 그 어머니에게 남쪽에 있는 어머니에게 전달을 했습니다. So I met him at uh, Kim Il Sung University, and he's writing a note, a, a letter uh, to uh, his mom uh, on my note. I also took a picture of him, uh, so I can send it uh, to the mom. 아, 그, 그는 3년 후에 아들이 먼저 죽었고 두달 후에 그 어머니도 남쪽에서 사망했습니다. Uh, three years after uh, Professor Cho passed away, and two months after that, uh, his uh, mother also passed away. Uh, 그 우리의 한국 사람이 이 북한 문제에 대해서 굉장히 복잡한 감정을 가지고 있고요. Uh, 그렇기 때문에 그 아무래도 이 남쪽의 언론인으로서 uh, 접한다는 것은 어떻게 보면 조금 더 뜨겁거나 다른 측면으로 그러니까 찬성해서 혹은 반대해서 조금 더 뜨겁고 복잡한 감정을 가지게 되는 것 같습니다. Uh, when it comes to our feelings uh, towards North Korea, it's very complex. And as a uh, press member uh, from South Korea, uh, we do have our certain thoughts, uh, but we look at North Korea with heart. 네, 이상입니다. Thank you so much. I did want to ask you, you mentioned that you could, as Koreans, or as a South Korean, you could see both the similarities and differences between you, you and the North Koreans. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit more about what you saw? Adjuns가 보여줬던 사진이 처음에는 당황스러웠습니다. 아니 우리가 북한 사람들하고 이렇게 비슷해? Yeah, actually, uh, it was also uh, quite uh, perplexing for me uh, to actually realize Ad from Adjuns is a. Uh, uh, pictures uh, that we are so similar to one another. Uh, 70년 정도 떨어져 있었지만 사실 그 너무나 오랫동안 많은 정체성을 가지고 있어서요. 심지어 좋아하는 노래풍 그런 것들도 비슷한 것 같아요. Uh, we have been divided uh, for 70 years, but prior to that we had been together for so, so much longer. And so the things uh, like the type of music that we like, uh, there are certain identities uh, we do share. 어, 재밌는 거는 남한 남자와 북한 남자가 이야기할 때입니다. 제가 보기엔 똑같아요. 북한 남자와 북한 남자. 그러니까 남자들끼리의 대화. 
uh, when uh, men get together, uh, I, either in South Korea or North Korea, they seem to be talking about the same topics anyway. <laughs> it's like that picture that Ed showed uh, of the young man, the way they interact is very similar to the way young men interact, I think, in South Korea. Yeah. Uh, okay, thank you so much. And I know we're running out of time, and you probably have some questions I wanted to give Katie a chance to talk about. Now, Katie was the Asia Bureau Chief for Sky News, and Korea, South and North, were part of her area of coverage. She made multiple trips to North Korea, and I think that what I wanted her to talk about a little bit was what it's like to go on one of these big media junkets because this is most of what the coverage that we get is these big media trips where journalists are invited in and she put out a very interesting report I think it was called a strange day in Pyongyang yeah do you remember that yeah. one uh, explaining, expressing a little bit of the frustration she had as a foreign correspondent who was there on the ground but wasn't able to cover much um, and I don't want the, I don't want to characterize your presentation, but uh, I, I do think that you you illustrate that frustration. And it ha I think it's helpful for us to understand the kind of limitations that journalists are under when they're there. So we can look at this information intelligently and put it into context. Yeah, thank you. So the, the perspective I wanted to offer is really what's happening behind the camera on a lot of the pictures that we tend to see here on our television, which, which tend to often be around these uh, big mass events. So I wanted to give you a sense of what it's like covering these, the kind of restrictions that we're operating under, and therefore the kind of context that this coverage is this coverage needs to be seen in. So I was based in Beijing from 2015 to 2018, which uh, included two nuclear tests, two uh, intercontinental ballistic missile tests, uh, countless missile launches, uh, and, and eventually also reporting uh, on the ground from North Korea. So the trip I'm going to focus on here is 2016. Uh, it was to cover the end of the Workers' Party Congress in North Korea, although, as you will see, it was very unclear, even once we were there, uh, exactly what we were going to be covering day to day and when and if the Congress was going to be coming to an end. So the first thing to understand is just the level of control that we're operating under there as foreign journalists. So right as we walked through passport control, uh, my colleague and I were a two-person team, were met by uh, one of what would be two minders or officials, guides, whatever you want to call them, who would be with us right the way through our trip until we went back through passport control again on the other end. Uh, they checked, uh, a security team at the airport checked all of our equipment, our phones, our uh, edit laptop, we were told they're particularly looking for any images that might be subversive, anything that might be uh, disrespectful towards the leadership. Uh, these guys, I, I don't want to identify them and put them in a difficult situation, so I, 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 we don't show their faces in any of our coverage, but they're with us, they're standing beside us through every interview that we do, every shot that we take. They stay with us in the hotel, not in our rooms, um, <laughs> and the hotel itself is on an island in the river. So we're really kind of, we're conscious right from the moment that we land in Pyongyang of how isolated and how limited our perspective is going to be. I call that the Tower of Pyongyang. Yeah. It felt sometimes like you were... Yeah, yeah you can see it, but it's a, it feels like it's a world away. And so this is the other side of, I think, the pictures that you're used to seeing of journalists going in. I have a colleague who keeps a tally of uh, people who are reporting on a rare glimpse inside North Korea. This is the reality for these big media trips. So this is very different from the type of reporting that, that Ed's doing, going in and out much more regularly. We're uh, ferried around on, on buses, on minibuses. We all have to wear these uh, press blue 
press armbands identifying ourselves as journalists um, at all times. And we have really no say over where we're going. We're told what time to meet in the lobby and then we'll likely be told on the way there, although sometimes not, um, which factory we're going to that day, what we're going to do. But really, we have no autonomy from the moment that we're on the ground. And that goes for the, the big events itself, uh, them, themselves. So it was clear to us that something was going to happen. <laughs> we could see uh, groups of people rehearsing in the streets. So when we would go out to visit all of these showcase factories, we would see uh, groups of people rehearsing we knew that something was going to happen. We thought it's probably going to be happen ov ov happening over the weekend. When that came and went, we thought maybe in the early week. In reality, I think it was after midnight uh, on the Sunday night, one of the minders called the phone in my hotel room to say, it's, there's a special event tomorrow. We can't tell you any details, but we'll need you to be in the lobby. I think it was at 5.30 a.m. Bring only the essential equipment. So you can bring your camera, your microphone, and your tripod nothing else, no phones, no broadcast equipment. It's gonna be very heavy security, which we took as an indication that this is it. This is the big event. Lightly, that means Kim Jong-un's gonna be there, but we wouldn't know until we actually got there. As Gina was alluding to, I mean, you're there hours and hours beforehand, as are the participants, who it was very surreal. So we were, by the time we'd gotten through all of the security in our broadcast positions, and they were kind of the distance that you are from me now, both just standing, kind of looking at each other, and they were just waiting for the signal, and they, they would stand there absolutely silently waiting for the signal. Suddenly then, the band would strike up, Kim Jong-un would appear, everyone would animate, and it would become, it would go from sort of zero to this real kind of mass hysteria. So I guess seeing the before and after of that, you really got a sense of how, it, one of the real limitations is understanding what is the experience of the people who are standing here in this square. For some of these people, this is presumably a once-in-a-lifetime honor to be this close to the leader. For a lot of these people, the impression that my colleagues and I got was there's just so much pressure to not make a mistake. You want to get everything right. You want to do the moves at exactly the right moment. We felt that really these people were under just so much pressure and so much scrutiny because you can see, I mean, they're being filmed at at very close range. So even though we were quite close physically, mm -hmm. it was just very hard to get any sense of what is the, what's the actual experience of the people that we're, that we're filming, that we're here to see. So I, I can tell you that having been on the ground as part of the local Foreign Press Corps, I also had to be out there uh, at five in the morning, at least three hours before Kim Jong-un arrived. And I almost nearly didn't survive one of those right. because it was in February in the middle of the winter, I thought I was gonna die. Right. I literally thought I was gonna die and so did everybody else with me. Um, and so, you know, you put your, you risk, I do have chronic frostbite, but you mm -hmm. do risk your life by being involved in one of these right. events. And right. that's, because you, you can't go anywhere. You literally cannot go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a little bit of the context of what goes right. into one of these big events. And as soon as it was over, it was really struck people just turned and went as a sort of human wave. And we were running after people trying to, you want to try and talk to people, but really. They have to go to the bathroom, come on. Well, you got, well, you got this strong sense, like this, yeah. this was something people had to do. Mm -hmm. And now it was done and they were moving on. So it was, although the pictures that you see are of people 
flooded with tears, absolutely hysterical in the in the presence of the leader. The experience before and after that was was very different. Mm. Yeah. And so the last sort of major problem you had when you were there was just the ability to communicate with people. So understanding that although you could speak to people face to face, look each other in the eye, affect a normal conversation. Of course it wasn't because you had all of these guys standing supervising. We had our minders beside us listening to everything that everyone was saying, taking notes, taking their name. So although nominally we could interview people, actually it was very hard to really give any meaning to what people were saying because of the, the constraints and the consequences for people if they said the wrong thing. They're absolutely terrified to say the wrong thing. And so they will say what they know is safe, which is on January 1st, or, or we didn't get a speech this year, but once the party policies come out, they will study those closely so that they know what they can say. Right. Uh, I think there was a lot of criticism about the lack of the people's voice in the coverage, but it's very hard to uh, allow them to, or to broadcast their voice when it's spouting propaganda because right. you feel that they're not re re expressing what they truly right. think. And, and I think we felt it was very important in our coverage to represent that and to explain here are the limits on the people that we're speaking to. Therefore, what they're saying may or may not be anything like what they actually think. I think in this case, and, and um, just to, um, sorry to interrupt, but learning, speaking their dialect or speaking Korean can be hugely, mm -hmm. we don't have many correspondents, honestly, in the, in, in the world of journalism who speak Korean and almost, and very few who speak North Korean. Um, but for me, learning the dialect, and my Korean's not great, but learning the dialect meant that I could pull them aside, not put a microphone in front of them, but have a candid conversation mm -hmm. so I could get a more realistic view of what it is they were thinking and what it is they were feeling. Right. Uh, once, you put a once you put a microphone in front of them or put a camera, then they know they have to perform, mm -hmm. and so it can be very hard to get an accurate. Right. So unfortunately, so many of us rely on our interpreters and that means that we don't get a real candid uh, response. Right. And so one thing I do try to encourage future foreign correspondents to do is if you're committed to, to covering North Korea and you want to get on the ground, learn the dialect, mm -hmm. learn Korean. Uh, I, you know, I think I had to learn North Korean right? Uh, because as soon as I spoke South Korean, they didn't want to talk to me. So these are, these are the kinds of things that we tell, I tell young journalists. It's a language that is, in, is very important mm -hmm. to learn if you want to be able to connect and communicate. Yeah. And we, so as a sort of somewhat mitigating from our side, we double-checked the translation. So we fed our recordings back to London every night and had a South Korean speaker who was used to understanding North Korean dialect just to check because what was being translated on the ground was being translated by our minders. So we wanted yeah. to check, did this person actually say what this person I mean, I did find that the interpreters only translate what they feel that they need to translate. So you don't get all the subtle stuff, all yeah. the jokes and all the, you don't get the, the good stuff. Mm -hmm. They don't translate it. So right. in that sense, it yeah. felt like my team, the non-Korean speaking team, had a different experience of North Korea than I did mm -hmm. because an, a different understanding because they only got 5% of the right. translation. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of the reasons that foreign journalists are, or yeah, particularly those of us who, who aren't Korean speakers are much more, they'd rather have us because they know that that's an a additional limit on our coverage and that we are having to 
get things get things checked and get the get the translation. That's interesting that you did that though. Yeah, well, yeah, just to check what did this person actually say though. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was just going to talk a little bit about so what is the value of going given the control, the choreography, the inability to really communicate. And there is criticism of journalists who go. Are we perpetuating regime propaganda? So I would say first and foremost as a journalist I always want to I think there's value to being on the ground in person even with very strict limits. There are also insights on the ground. So even within this level of control, you can see the seams and you can see, so it's instructive in itself, the level of control, the level of choreography, the level of guidance. In this factory, this was one of several showcase factories that we were taken to, just asking very basic questions to people about, so this man in the top right, I had just asked him, could he talk to us about what his job here in the, in the factory involves? What is the machine that he's working at? And his response is he doesn't actually normally work here, so he doesn't know. And the uh, it's part of the theater, right? And the so the our like colleague, our, our cameraman, also noticed this chap writing notes of someone else we were speaking to, and we had the notes translated. I've blurred them so you can't see, but the note was a, a name and soldier. So we got the impression over the course of this visit to this factory that actually a number of these people were stand-ins. That this wasn't necessarily. As it, as it looked, which is what, what we reported. You can also, I mean, Ed referred to the power cuts. You can see power outages. You can see how dark the city is at night. And I think the really important thing in terms of our coverage was to put everything that we're seeing in Pyongyang in the context of really how unrepresentative a picture Pyongyang is of the wider country and how limited, even the small view that we have here, how limited that is, you know, sorry, going on. So we also did a lot of reporting from China and from South Korea. So this is from Dandong up in northeast China. Um, on the left of the picture is, is China, and as you can see on, on the right is North Korea. This is not late in the evening. This is, I think, between 7 Probably and sunset. 8 p.m. Yeah. As soon as the sun sets, they're yeah. late. And we, so we also tried to really present present the country more broadly than just so I think when when what you see is the pictures of the military parades and the what is an elite who live in Pyongyang what is missing is the reality of the le the rest of the country where life is very very hard I think by my very poor maths more than 88 of 88 percent of the population so more than 22 million people do not live in Pyongyang mm -hmm. and life in the countryside there are still real problems with access to safe water 20 percent of the population Absolutely. is malnourished a quarter of children in well food programs supported nurseries are stunted they're physically shorter than they should be for their age so there are really severe problems happening in the country and this was something i actually raised with one of the officials um in pyongyang on our i think fifth visit to an ideal model place and he was saying isn't it great to see how well the people live here and I did say, I think we both know this is not how most people in this country live. But I think this, like these images and this reality was so important to keep in mind as the context for the reporting that we're, that we're able to do in Pyongyang. Absolutely. And so just a final point, because I know we're, we're <laughs> actually over our time. Um, this is something I've become personally obsessed with, and which is why I, I left Sky to come to the Wilson Center and, and pursue this project. 
I think one thing that really helps us in our understanding of North Korea and in our journalism on North Korea is understanding the history and particularly understanding the Kim regime's version of that history. So like, the trips up Mount Pekto that Ed was showing earlier, like, how central to the regime narrative, what is actually largely a false version of history has become. And the prism through which people who are growing up there, like these kids riding around the model Unha rocket, the reality that they are being presented, the justification that they are given for the sanctions, the hardship that they have to endure and the necessity to invest in nuclear weapons and intercontinental ballistic missiles. So I think really understanding the history and the symbolism behind the propaganda can really help our, our journalism and our understanding of North Korea. But I, I also want to just acknowledge the very fine work of my colleagues up here and say that although reporting on North Korea is certainly absolutely challenging, valuable, insightful reporting is possible, and I think it really can help contribute to our understanding of the country. And the I mean, I do think that, you know, what we're talking about is getting that, uh, that, that footage or getting that picture that our news agencies demand is challenging. It uh, doesn't portray everything, but there's so much more that we get by being there that helps us understand the, the, the rhythm of daily life. And, and that doesn't, and I, I, the other thing I wanted to say is I think, and, and Ed, uh, perhaps you can, do you want to come in and sure. join us? Um, it takes many, 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 many trips to North Korea before you start to understand. Because theater is so important to them, and there is so much of wanting to project the best image, and you can't fault them for that. They have a very different way of understanding presentation, uh, and they don't understand why we would want to see anything that isn't, is less than perfect, that isn't perfect. Uh, so it takes, so for me, I was there for weeks on end. I was up there for five weeks at a time, and they got pretty tired after a couple days of pretending, right? So if you're there for that long, you get to see what I call in between the theater. You don't get to see just the final performances. You see the rehearsals and everything in between. Uh, and so that's useful as well. It humanizes uh, the vision that we have. A lot of this stuff doesn't get into our coverage, to be honest. It's very hard to speak honestly or to get that on the record in the way that we do journalism in the West. Uh, but this is part, part of why I joined the Wilson Center and I think why Katie joined is we want to try to understand what it is we were seeing. And I think I know far more about North Korea now having done my homework uh, than I did when I was on the ground. And part of it, you know, I wanted to bring Ed as well so he could benefit from the scholarship that we've benefited from. Um, but I wanted to ask you that as well, Ed. So Ed and I have been, we were in North Korea together for the first time in 2012. Were you on the train trip? No. Oh, you weren't on the train, okay. So, but you were there for, was it 2012 or 2013? 2012, there were, there were, we had two teams. One team went on the, by train. Okay. Trip, and then I flew in, I think the same day. So tell, I, I, I'm sorry, did I interrupt your presentation? No, 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 I'm good. I wanted to talk, a hear a little bit about the evolution of your experience as a reporter. Because mm. you went from being on one of those big junkets to being there on the ground for long stretches of time. How is it different? Uh, it's different in the sense that, that when you arrive for the first time, your priorities are uh, to, to produce, to, to get stuff out quickly, and to cover the event that you're there to cover. Whereas uh, once our office was opened and once our trips became more regular, the approach sort of slowed down. And there was a need to, to sort of document almost for posterity what you were seeing, uh, uh, sort of providing a snapshot of the country. Um, 
that, that would be a, a useful public record, but also to pursue a longer game to develop relationships, uh, to develop contacts, and to try and provide a, a, a much deeper understanding of the country. There's a lot of impatience, I think, in the outside world with our coverage because people want people often say, well, you're not getting pictures of the prison camps, you're not getting pictures. But I often try to say that, you know, we, that is the goal. You want to get those images eventually, but you're not going to get there if you don't build trust. It's a very complicated relationship that you have with the North Koreans. I'm just grateful that we have some correspondents. We haven't had many correspondents on the ground in North Korea over the past couple of years, which is ironic given Kim Jong-un's diplomatic outreach. So we're getting a lot of uh, him, but we're not getting a lot of the people. Um, I wanted to open it up to the audience. We, it's, it's already, it's 1240, so mindful of the time. We'll ask a couple questions. Please, um, pardon? Please ident, sorry? Oh, le I'm sorry, the clock has not been changed. 1140, um, but please identify yourself and please keep your questions short. We'll take three questions to start, start out with. We'll take one in the back. Do you want to bring the microphone? And then um, one in the middle here, and then one in the front. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I'm Jung from Radio Free Asia. Uh, thank you. Uh, you guys have the uh, very um, unique experience. Uh, uh, look at the North Koreans very closely in North Korea. So uh, my question is the one question that after uh, since um, implementing the international economic sanctions. So how do you think that the, is there any the impact on their daily life in the North Koreans? Okay, and then let's take one question here. Um, in the brown vest, brown jacket, and then in here, here in the front. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, um, my name is Yuan. I'm uh, also a reporter from Radio Free Asia. Okay. Um, well, you are all on the ground in North Korea, so I was wondering, like, what do you think the U.S. and North Korea relations are heading right now? <laughs> um, do you <laughs> think that it is possible to to uh, see a breakthrough or some sort of um, progress in the t nuclear talks with North Korea? Okay, and then one question here in the front. We'll take another round after this, just want to get... Uh, Liz Kim from Voice of America. I'm a, also a reporter. I totally envy you guys for having been able to report in North Korea. Uh, just for a question for all of you, um, I wonder what is the biggest transformation or biggest difference you noticed since you first visited North Korea compared to right now, the situation? Okay, maybe Ed, you can start with that question. Uh, sure. Um, the biggest transformation, I would say, is the uh, the, the the increasing use of, of mobile phones. I knew you were going to say that. I know, but <laughs> it's uh, it's it's really uh, the obvious difference. Um, similarly, in 2013, I think it was, or 2014, uh, there were signs of of independent or or seemingly independent companies. Um, uh, popping up, such as the, uh, the, the taxi, the logos on the taxis that you would see, um, and the emergence of the, the mobile phone network, Coriolink. Uh, yeah, we can't underestimate the uh, tidal wave of change that a cell phone network can offer in a country where information is so normally so strictly regulated. Right, you have people documenting their own lives in a way that they simply didn't before. Um, and I've sharing information. Yeah, I've seen people uh, in, I, I remember going to a cooking, um, a cooking show and people were recording what they were seeing. What were they doing with that? Using it for themselves or sharing it? And if they were sharing it, how were they sharing it? And if they can share that, what else can they share? Um, 
the point is enabling communication is something that that has so far been quite evasive uh, in North Korea over a long distance. So. Uh, and, and, and as rapidly as we're accustomed to. So I think mobile phones represent an, an important development. I do want to mention that we have two experts on this topic sitting right over there, Martin Williams and Jiun Beck, so please harass them afterward if you're interested in that topic <coughs> of um, the flow of information. And let's see, uh, sanctions on daily life, how that's affected? Did you, uh, in your um, visits at an Hyangyang see any impact on daily life. 좋아지는 그런 모양을 새를 보였던 것 같습니다. 처음에 그 so as to uh, what happened after the economic sanctions, well, in particular after 2018, when the sanctions uh, became more uh, stringent, I have not been back to the North Korea, so I couldn't tell you about that. However, what I can tell you is uh, from 2008, uh, when I had witnessed North Korea, the economy uh, had uh, picked up quite a bit. Uh, it was quite uh, noticeable. 어, 2000년대 초반에는 평양에서도 수시로 정전이 되는 모습을 볼 수가 있었고요. 남포를 방문했을 때 1시간 동안 세 차례 정전이 되는데 아무도 동요하지 않았습니다. 그들에게는 일상이었던 거죠. 공장이 멈추는 일 자체가 뭐 일상이었던 것 같습니다. So uh, to give you a uh, comparison uh, in the earlier uh, part of 2000s uh, even in the city of Pyongyang, the lights went out uh, quite a bit. And uh, when I had uh, one time visited Nampo City, in the factory, uh, it within one hour, the uh, power went out for three times. However, nobody uh, seems to have been disturbed uh, by it. 금강산에서 열렸던 남북회담 당시에는 만찬 진행 중에 정전이 돼서 카메라 라이트를 켜고 만찬을 했던 적도 있었습니다. And the uh, 금강 mountain, uh, there was a, uh, a dinner uh, that was going on and then the lights went out. And so what we ended up doing was to have the cameras have their lights turned on and then have uh, the uh, dinner continue on. Yeah. 어, 정전 때문에 그 남북한이 서로 이제 훈령을 받아야 평양과 서울로부터 서로 훈령을 받아야 되는데 정전 때문에 그게 안 돼서 회담을 중단해야 하는 일들도 수시로 있었고요. 어, 또한 번은 그 카메라 그 필름 인화를 하는데 헤어드라이어로 필름을 그 말리는 그 작업을 하다가 정전이 돼서 어, 카메라 그 사진 기자가 필름을 들고 내려왔습니다. 저희가 신문지로 부채를 만들어서 붙였습니다. <웃음> Yeah, so uh, power is a constant problem in North Korea as far as the lightings are concerned. Uh, and uh, sometimes when they have uh, these uh, meetings uh, between South and North Korea, uh, the lights would go out. Uh, and then uh, now you can't get the uh, directions uh, from the uh, home office, uh, so what do you do? Uh, and then also there have been instances where uh, our films, uh, when we do the shooting, uh, the films have to be hair dried or using a hair dryer dry them. But sometimes the lights would go out. So what do you do? Uh, so you bring those downstairs. And uh, I do remember us making a fan out of a newspaper and fanning these uh, films. Yeah. Uh, 
어, 북한에서 2008년, 2009년 그때쯤이면 김정은이 후계자로 어, 공식화되던 시기였는데 북한 사람들의 기억에 경제는 좋아졌습니다. As far as the uh, economy is concerned, I think it's more psychological. Uh, you're actually uh, not looking at, in, at any numbers, but the baseline being how it was before. And it seems uh, from 2008 on, uh, the economy has gotten better uh, the way they feel it. And this is especially true for 2008-2009 uh, time period uh, because uh, this was the time period when Kim Jong-un uh, was uh, getting officially recognized as the leader to be. 문제는 그 다음입니다. 어, 북한 사람들이 심리적 경제가 좋아지던 것에서 제재는 제재의 강도와 축적된 시간에 비례해서 효과를 발휘하게 될 텐데요. 어, 지금 북한이 이 경제가 과연 그 지속되는 제재를 계속 감당할 수 있을지 이것은 큰 도전이라고 생각이 되고요. 그래서 지금 북한이 다시 선군 밀리터리 퍼스트로 돌아가겠다고 하는 지금의 상황이 굉장히 위태롭게 보이고 있습니다. As to the uh, whether the economy is better, again, I go back to the psychological factor. And uh, do uh, North Koreans today uh, feel that the economy is doing better? Uh, probably not. Uh, the sanctioning regime and the intensity uh, has gotten uh, uh, harsher for them. And it's been, a, uh, I would think, a major challenge for them now at this point, uh, whether they can stand it. Uh, or not, and that is why uh, they have actually turned to military uh, first again, and uh, they're just trying to find a way to uh, break through. So I will just, um, I wanted to mention Dr. Hazel Smith in the back, who is one of the foremost experts on North Korea's economy. Uh, we're very happy to have her here at the Wilson Center, and I highly recommend the book that she's written, North Korea Markets and Military Rule. She's working on another book focused on the economy. We will have another event that's focused on sanctions and the impact on uh, the North Korean economy. I did want to just put things into context and, you know, around 2008, August 2008, Kim Jong-il suffered a stroke, went into, lapsed into a coma, and from that point on, when he did emerge, knew that he had to prepare not only his son for, but his country for a new era of leadership. And so a focus was placed on improving the economy in a sense in a way to pave the way for that uh, new era of leadership. Most of those resources were focused on Pyongyang, right, that power base. For me, real change isn't going to count until I see it across the country, until I see the countryside developed, basic needs met, and I think it'll take a long time, but that's all, that also has to be the barometer as well. Is every North Korean, has their life improved, or is it just for a, a, a few, a few people in Pyongyang. So we, I understand he wants to start with his power base, but let's hope that that extends to the rest of the people. And you may, some of you may feel that that may not happen. Uh, but for me, the barometer of has the economy truly improved or has there been a transformation will be when I start to see real change in the countryside. I was just also going to add on the where are relations headed, which is obviously a fool's errand of a question to answer. Um, <laughs> Just noting the uh, satellite imagery over the last 24 hours of uh, possible activity at, at a missile test site, I think we're into a really tricky balancing act period for Kim Jong-un now where I think he's trying to thread the needle of enough attention that he's on the radar that 
he is a, a priority for the uh, Trump administration, but not so much that he uh, loses the potential for some sort of negotiated outcome and, and shuts that door. Also that he, that he doesn't uh, he doesn't isolate himself from China and Russia. I think if he is able to play a sufficiently <coughs> long and patient game, I think there are already indications that China and Russia are starting to push to have some of the sanctions lifted. So I think he's, he's, it's a balancing act for Kim Jong-un right now. And I, I don't think, I, perhaps even he doesn't know like, where this is headed. But I think, I think that's, the, that's the calculus, is try and stay on the radar, but try not to isolate potential potential friends. Shall we take one more round, quick round, two questions? Okay, we have one here, and then is there anyone else in the corner? Okay, we'll take two last questions. Please identify yourself and then Oh, go Sandra ahead. Barons, I'm just a citizen. <laughs> Um, it's a good question. Uh, I often uh, make a list of things that I would like to do or see or cover. And the way that, that these requests are handled is somewhat um, somewhat hidden from view. So quite often I won't know what is available until until I arrive and until I'm, I'm told what's been what's been possible or not. I don't necessarily get an answer about something that is not possible. I just won't hear about it. And the nature of the request sort of being kicked up the chain, uh, so to speak, means that the reason for their, for their uh, impossibility or denial won't always get back to me. So in that case, they, we just keep on pushing and I will request things over and over and over again and hope that they come to fruition. You're so patient. <laughs> Well, that's true across South Korea and North Korea as well. The war has a huge impact, has scarred both, I mean, all of Korea. Um, yeah, uh, there was another question in the back. Uh, Henry Hector, retired government. I, I wanted, based on the people you've met uh, through your travels in North Korea, I, I didn't realize that they had a problem understanding the people from South Korea, but how many of them know English approximately? Do they study foreign language? And, and how many know Chinese? What is their most favorite foreign language if they do have one? English. That's the most popular foreign language. And we always, I always argue that they should be learning American English. They have two different courses, American and British. <laughs> Nonsense. Um, <laughs> uh, 
I think Chinese is also quite widely spoken. Uh, certainly people that I've met um, and, and that I will engage in conversation in my, in my poor Korean um, <clears throat> will go on to, to, to display some knowledge of Chinese or English. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Certainly. It used to be Russian, but I think that's fallen out of favor. Mm, yeah. So it's really different by generation. But I think there's also an element of um, uh, of people being quite shy when you engage them in conversation if they're not accustomed to talking to to a foreigner. So sometimes they might be reluctant to display any knowledge of foreign languages, and to that extent, I'm I'm not sure um, what what their knowledge is. Um, and so often conversations are quite are quite basic, um, and any phrases that they might be able to give me are also similarly basic. The British Council did have teachers in Pyongyang. I think they've since pulled them out. Right? Certainly people in Pyongyang have, a, have an excellent grasp of, of English. Um, but in the countryside, I, I think that's, that's rare. Very rare, mm. yeah. Okay, thank you so much for um, joining us today. I know that we just scratched the surface and there's so many other compelling issues that we didn't get to, so many questions that you may have. This is a regular series that we'd like to do uh, as I you know, we, we had hoped to bring David Gutenfelder, who is my colleague in Pyongyang. He'll come another time. Uh, but we please stay on the mailing list and join us again. And thank our speakers for coming all the way from Korea to join us.